your barometer for whether or not the work that you've chosen to do, this replatforming, this refactoring of the code base, whatever it is, right, your barometer is not, did we deploy the new platform or did we refactor the code? It's, are people more productive? Are they more responsive? Can they react more efficiently to what's happening in the marketplace? And we know that they are or they aren't based on these behaviors. That's the, the fundamental difference here is the measure of success becomes the behavior change in people, externally facing or internally facing. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day -day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello and welcome to the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Jeff Goffelf. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Melissa. It's good to be here. Always fun to chat. Yeah, it's great to see you again. How is Barcelona treating you? It's great. When we were in lockdown, it was a good place to be locked down. At least I could see the Mediterranean from my house. And now that things are open again, it's fantastic. I've been here almost five years and still have that feeling every now and again where you're walking down a street or a block or riding my bike, whatever, like, oh, wow, I live here. Like, it's super cool. I'm happy. We're happy. It's good. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm sure the weather doesn't hurt either. It doesn't. Nope, not at all. That's awesome. If you don't know Jeff Goffelf, Jeff is a experienced consultant in the Agile and Lean UX world. He's been working with product managers and UX leadership and executives and CEOs all over the world to learn these techniques about how to make modern software companies. So Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to recently and what type of work you've been doing? Yeah. One of the things I'm really proud of over the last year or two years is Josh Sodden and I got to write and launch the third edition of Lean UX. Now, I think it's fun and I'm proud of it, A, because it's the best version of the book yet. You get a chance to iterate a book. It's rare, particularly one you didn't self-publish. But the fact that this is still a part of the conversation is exciting and interesting to me. You know, it's been a decade of that book being out on the market at this point. And the fact that there's still so much demand for newer versions of it, I'm super proud of that. Lately, in the last couple of years, too, I've shifted a lot of my focus to objectives and key results, the goal-setting framework that's sweeping the nation, taking the world by storm. And so that's been really fun and interesting and to have some kind of new and different conversations. And it's really interesting, too, and we'll get into it, I think, a little bit later as well, is to who I'm having these conversations with. You mentioned in the intro that I do a lot of work with product managers and UX designers and, and the leadership of those groups, and I have done that a lot in the past. The OKR conversation starts at a different place in the organization. It ends up with product and UX and tech and all those folks, but it always starts in a different place in the organization. So I'm doing a lot of that as well. And the best part of the last couple of years is I've transitioned my entire business online. And so I work from my home office. I don't travel for work anymore. And that's been uh, personally and professionally transformational. It's just, it's a whole different way of living and doing work. And, and they've been really good business years. That's the, the best part of it is that the business hasn't suffered and my personal life has benefited tremendously from this. So that's what I've been up to. 
sounds like good things all around. I know we've been talking a lot about the the not traveling piece of COVID that has been really, really nice. And after taking 137 flights in one year, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I got yeah. to cut back. But I do miss getting out there and uh, seeing you at conferences specifically. Like we used to run into each other, what, like five, six times a year sometimes, <laughs> different countries. I miss that too, yeah. I think that's the, the part that I miss the most is this serendipity of running into folks and the community. So we see each other on Zoom calls and whatever, but that part is definitely is missing for me. Because, you know, like you, I have friends all over the world. And the only time I really saw those folks is when I traveled for work or for conferences or for events or whatever. And so I haven't seen them in a while. So that is the sad side of it. Me too. I'm looking forward to getting back to that part, but I am excited that we can still keep doing what we love doing online too. So that's pretty fun. But this uh, OKR framework that we're talking about, the goal setting framework, uh, you just mentioned, it usually comes from a different part of the organization. I've been doing a lot of work with people in strategy deployment and strategy creation, getting into the OKRs. I think I got an email like 10 minutes before this about somebody having OKR trouble. Where have you seen it start to originate from that conversation? So the interesting part for me is that the majority of the inbound requests that I get for objectives and key results are coming from HR and HR leadership specifically. Yeah. So not product initially. Certainly there's some, but we're talking about sort of the majority. The majority has been HR leadership. So folks who are in the performance management business, who are in the promotion and incentives and the goal setting business. And they are realizing that there's a new way to measure success. There's this idea. It's not that new, frankly, it's 40 years old. And so there is a tremendous amount of interest from HR, particularly the performance and retention and promotion side of that discipline that is really interested in this and wants to learn it and then wants to figure out how to deploy it across the entire organization. Because it's weird, I think, to deploy it to only a a few departments or a few teams or a few folks in the organization. And so that's been the genesis of a lot of these conversations for me. That's really interesting. So are they using it to benchmark people's performance or trying to tie like how they're working back to the business goals? Yeah, that's exactly right. They're trying to see if this is sort of the new 360 review, if this is the new, should I incentivize people to hit their OKRs? Should I promote people for hitting their OKRs? Should we celebrate because of OKRs? And, and what do we measure? Is it just, hey, did you, did you hit the KR? Or is there more to it? That's the beginning of the conversation. And, it, and it's really interesting. And it actually pleases me because every single agile transformation that I've seen, that I've been a part of, especially big ones, and you and I have worked in some of the same companies as consultants over the, the last few years, the last thing they do is performance management. They'll change the physical space. They'll change the vocabulary. They'll change where people are sitting and what teams they're on. They'll start talking about release trains and all this kind of stuff. But the last thing they'll do is actually talk about what do we measure? What do we incentivize? What do we reward? What do we promote? Because it's messy. It's hard and it's risky. I've seen this because I typically work with large organizations. I see this all the time, right? Imagine you've been in an organization, say, let's say it's a bank, and you've been at that bank for 20 years, and you've played by the rules, 
and you've got your sights set on that corner office, inching towards that corner office for 20 years. And then what? We're going to move the goalposts on people after 20 years? of It's not just we're going to move them further away. We're actually going to move them laterally to a completely different set of measurements and goals. That's really scary. Like There's a lot of risk there for kind of massive backlash, attrition, that type of thing. And so it's not surprising to me that I'm seeing HR come with these questions first, and I'm super happy to see it. That's really interesting. So when I've worked with OKRs, though, I feel like one misconception that I keep seeing all over the place is leadership kind of going to product managers or going to these teams. And I imagine HR probably does this as well. Go, what are your OKRs? Like, give me your goals. (laughs) And if you know strategy deployment for these organizations who are learning strategy deployment, you know that has to kind of start with the business goals on the top. When you get brought in to help these HR teams set the goals, like what are their misconceptions around it do you run into? And and how do you start orienting them towards understanding that this is not just like, hey, product managers, go tell me what your goals are so I can measure you against them, but more of like a company-wide undertaking, more of like a strategy setting opportunity? Yes. They don't know that, right? So what, what you just said is a big, big part of the initial education because what you suggested is exactly right. They're like, oh, okay, this is just a new way to set goals and to measure folks. So just explain it to me and then we'll put it into place and then everything will be fine. And the reality is like, what's the point? Like if you're just gonna swap one goal setting framework for another and not change anything else, what's the point? There's literally no point in doing that. The first thing I do is I, we, we have a, a fairly significant educational session about just what are OKRs. Now, look, it's not brain surgery. It's a, it's a really simple concept. It's just not easy to implement, but the concept itself is really simple. So then we explain, hey, this is what they are. The second thing we talk about is, okay, great. These things don't exist in a vacuum and they can't just be manufactured out of thin air. They have to be derived from some kind of corporate strategy, product strategy, business unit strategy, right? Something that that has to exist, that has to be aligned across the organization or the, or the business unit, and people have to know it before they can even think about how to come up with objectives and key results that make sense to achieve that particular strategy. And so there's a massive conversation to be had ahead of this that most organizations either dismiss or limit to a select few high-ranking individuals and then sort of assume that everybody else knows. Yeah. So if you were to describe what is an objective and key result, like what's an OKR for your definition, let's pretend whoever's listening to this doesn't really know what it is. Like what's your definition for this? Yeah, super simple. So objectives are the qualitative goals that we would like to achieve. So to be clear, they're qualitative, I'll say it again, they're qualitative. They are aspirational, inspirational, the value of doing this should be clear. So this, how does this contribute to the strategic goals of the organization and their time box? So in a good objective statement, you're going to hear a lot of superlatives. We'll want to be the best, the most efficient, the easiest to use, the fastest, that type of thing, the go-to destination, something like that. Those are the objectives. The key results are the quantitative measures that tell us whether or not we've actually achieved the objective. And to be clear, they're quantitative measures. Say it again, they're metrics. And most importantly, 
They are measures of human behavior. They are outcomes. To me, those are the most important, and they need to be verifiable with evidence. We need to be able to look at a report, analytics, market research, data, whatever it is that says this is true. So they're metrics. They're not features. They're not output. And those metrics have to be outcomes, measures of human behavior, because you can put metrics in there that are not measures of human behavior. For example, bounce rate. I'm sorry, bounce rate is human behavior. I take it back. That's always my counter. The one I was thinking of was homepage load time. We want to improve homepage load time by 50%. That's a metric, but it's not a measure of human behavior. It's a measure of the system. If you reduce bounce rate by 50%, that's a measure of human behavior. And the humans whose behavior we want to measure are the humans who consume the thing that we're making or the things that we are making. So if you make a consumer-facing product, then those consumers are the people whose behavior you want to change. If you make an internally-facing product that other teams use, then those are the people whose behavior you want to change. And I would argue, and we're going to get a bit meta about this for a second, if you make things that are consumed, for example, by an executive team inside an organization, you make a report or you make a budget or a policy, those are the folks whose behavior you want to change. And so that is what a key result to me is. It's a quantitative measure of human behavior that's verifiable by evidence. So one place I see a lot of people struggle is around that qualitative side too. Like in the quantitative side, what you're saying makes total sense to me. And I think we can use a lot of our really great product metrics from it to show how people are interacting with it and adopting it. But where I see people struggle is that qualitative statement because they go, well, let's be the best checkout flow. What does that mean? Right? Like, what does the best yeah. mean? So how do you help people who want to put all those superlatives in there and like shove it with that stuff and make it kind of fluffy? What makes a great objective statement when it comes to the qualitative side? Yeah, so specificity, I think, is key. It's one of the things, if you've ever taken a class from me, you've heard that word from me because inevitably, as folks kind of go through the process that, that I teach, they start off really big and they do stuff like you just said, like the best checkout process in the world. You're like, really? You want to be the best checkout process in the world? Let's be specific. What's happening right now? How can you make that more specific? So is it things like, hey, we want to be the easiest to use grocery delivery service in Spain, for example, something along those lines. So the more specific that you can be, and again, it really depends. We can talk about setting levels, right? But like, this assumes that you are the team that's in charge of the entire application. You might say, look, we want to be the most efficient checkout process for grocery deliveries in Spain in 2022, something along those lines. That becomes really interesting because now you've actually made a bit more specific about just one portion of the, of the user journey in there as well. And ideally, that's a part of the user journey that you and your team can influence as well. And so the more specific that you can be, the better the objective statement is. Yeah, I like that a lot, the specificity that really, I think, drives home what you're getting at. And you just mentioned the levels too, which is something I think that's really important about OKR is that a lot of people don't anticipate. I've seen a lot of teams have like every single person as their own OKR. Sometimes that happens. I find that every level sometimes gets their own OKRs. But then in some organizations, like these really large banks, there's like 27 levels of people. And then all of a sudden we have 27 levels of OKRs for our product the right amount of levels? How do you think about like, where does an OKR span? And 
how many should there be in an organization and what should it actually cover? Let's talk about it from a couple of different perspectives. So first of all, from a leveling perspective, we want to write, if you're in a position to write objectives and key results for your team, you want to write objectives and key results that your team can actually hit. So for example, let's say you're in charge of the authentication process, the authentication portion of the customer journey in your online grocery delivery app. You should not sign your team up for average order value metrics or something along those lines, right? Because that's not the part of the world that you control. So you want to set levels that your team can actually influence, right? So if you're in charge of authentication, you're going to focus on the authentication piece. You're going to focus on behaviors like successful authentications, number of support calls about authentication, number of password retrievals. Like Those are the kinds of things you're going to sign up for because those are the things that you can directly influence, right? And the higher up in the organization you go, you might actually end up taking on an entire customer journey, an entire application, an entire business unit. It really depends on where you sit in the organization. Now, as you pointed out, particularly in large companies, you're going to have multiple layers. And so the question becomes, when does it become counterproductive to continue and slice and dice the OKRs until every person has it? Certainly, we don't want to go down to the individual person level. At the very worst or the very, the very lowest level we want to get down to, a team should know what their OKRs are. However, we then start to run the risk of hyperlocal optimization. I've experienced this myself throughout my career where a team will have a key result to hit and they're just blinders on, heads down, working towards optimizing that specific customer behavior. Regardless of how that customer behavior impacts other things downstream from them, because their job is just to optimize this particular behavior. Meanwhile, they're adversely impacting their colleagues who are two or three steps down the customer journey. And so that's one of the biggest risks of slicing this down really, really small. I'll give you an example. I worked at the ladders a thousand years ago in New York City, and I worked on the product side of things. One of our main goals, it was a subscription service. One of our main goals was retention. One of our main key results was retaining our customers on a month-to-month basis. On the marketing side, the marketing folks had acquisition goals. And whenever the acquisition goal, the acquisition key result would start to drop a little bit, those folks had their go-to hammer and their hammer was email marketing. And they would crank it up and they would start sending hundreds and thousands of emails every week to get folks into the system and reminding them to use the system. It would murder retention. It would drive acquisition up, but they'd send it to existing customers as well. And so our retention numbers would be awful, but their acquisition numbers were great. So they're filling the top of the funnel and we're bleeding out the other end. But they didn't care because they were solely measured on that acquisition metric. We were being killed by our own colleagues. It was a real issue. And so when we kind of slice and dice our teams into too fine of slice, I guess, we run the risk of hyper-local optimization and not being able to sort of see the forest for the trees. In those situations, one of the better tactics that I've seen over the years is to actually take a set of teams, two, three, four, even five teams, depending on it, and giving them the same objective and key results set to hit, right? Now, what those teams, what we've done in that situation is we have defined success for all five of those teams with the same terms. And so now they've got to self-organize. They've got to communicate 
They've got to be transparent. They've got to share data. They've got to be proactive about, hey, we're doing this. And be like, yeah, you're doing that, but it's killing us over here because they win or lose together. And so it's one of those things that you have to watch out for and you have to nip in the bud very, very, very quickly because it's, especially in large organizations, it's inevitable that it's going to happen as you start to kind of chop the customer journeys and the processes down to too fine of a, of a slice. I had the same exact experience, Open Sky too, where uh, our marketing team kept giving credits to people for their first purchase and retention just like hit the ground. So definitely seen that happen before. And I like your idea of giving a couple teams the same type of metrics and key results. How do you kind of scope that? where everybody's kind of working towards the same ones. Like, how do you know, let me give a couple of these teams the same one rather than do it individually? Like what types of problems in the organizations would drive you to do that? So again, I think this hyper-local optimization that negatively impacts other teams is a clear sign that we've sliced too thin. I think that's the first thing. Again, as you know, there's no one size fits all answer to this kind of stuff, but I think there's some common sense to be taken, like, should we really divide the, I don't know, the, the sign-in process into signing in for one team, password retrieval for another team, customer support for a third? Like, in other words, there's some common yeah. stuff that has to be taken into account in these situations that says, look, this is the atomic unit of the customer journey, and we are not going to break it down any further. I don't know what the rule of thumb here is, but I think there's some common sense that, com- that comes into that. Yeah. It sounds almost like breaking it down into like a job to be done level or some kind of bound by a feature level instead of getting into the absolute component parts of it, which makes sense because it's really that feature and that piece driving the metric forward, right? It's not like the individual component of the API that does login that's going to make login successful. It's like the whole login piece usually has to contribute towards that. So That makes a lot of sense to me. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. With the OKRs too, like we're, we've been talking a lot about the team level OKRs, but as we started talking about at the beginning, you know, a lot of this comes from the executives and from figuring out like your business strategy and what's going on that way. What makes a good high level OKR at the executive level? And What's kind of the scope that we should be thinking about if we're an executive or a product leader to make sure that when we get down to the team level, it's not so pigeonholed where they can't actually make any experiments for themselves or they can't really figure out what solution they should be building. So as a rule of thumb, and I know this contradicts measure what matters, we don't put output in our key results. I want to talk about that for just a second and then I'll answer your actual question. (laughs) The reason why we don't put outputs in key results is because the moment that you put an output in your key result, you're back to fixed time, fixed scope initiatives. You're saying, hey, we want to be the, the most efficient checkout process in online grocery ordering in Spain. Terrific. And then the key result is we'll implement one-click ordering by Thursday, right? There's no room for experimentation. There's no room for 
diversion. You've assumed that this is going to work. You've assumed that this is what your customers want. You've assumed a certain way of developing it. You're going to ship it by a certain date and you're going to move on to something else, right? At which point we've added no value by switching your goal setting framework to OKRs. It's completely moot at this point. You're just saying, look, it's the same thing as waterfall development. We're going to build this. We're going to get it done by this date. You did it. Yes. You didn't do it. Sorry. Right. That type of thing. So that's really important to remember that. If you're starting to find output in your key results, it breaks the process. Now, coming back to your other question. So what makes for a good executive level OKR statement? The terms that we use, that I use when I teach this stuff is impact and outcome metrics. So impact metrics are the high level measures of the health of the business. You'll see them sometimes in KPIs. You'll see them on executive dashboards, sales, profit, revenue, retention, customer satisfaction, that type of thing. Those are the kinds of things. I would expect to see those kinds of metrics in an executive key objective and key results statements. For example, let's say this is a strategic objective to expand into North America. You're, you're a big player in Europe and you want to expand into North America. So our objective is to become a significant player in our space in North America by the end of the year, right? That's our objective. And so the key results I would expect to see for that would be things like 10% market share by the end of the year, at least 15 million in revenue, stuff like that. Like that's the kind of stuff that I would expect to see at the executive level when it comes to a key result. Now you might argue, Jeff, that, that's, that those aren't human behaviors. Well, I, would say, I would say it kind of feels like they're very high aggregate measures of human behavior. But those are the kinds of key results that I would expect to see at the executive level. The next conversation then is about outcomes, right? So if those are your impact metrics as key results for the executives, the outcome metrics become the things that the teams need to achieve. So what are the leading indicators of market share? What are the leading indicators of revenue, right? What are the leading indicators of adoption in this new North American marketplace? And so those are the kinds of conversations that we want to have. And generally speaking, those are the behaviors that our users do in the product or in the system. And the exercise that I run with most teams and most executives is a literal visualization of that relationship. We put the impact metrics at the top of a, of a board or whatever. And then we start to say, okay, great. What are the leading indicators of all of these things? And we start to map out a tree of leading and lagging indicators. And then we look at this board that's filled with post-it notes. It's going to be dozens of things. And we say, great. Now, strategically, what do we care about for the next six months? And then we try to carve out a slice of that. And it's those slices that the teams can start to work towards. So the slice of outcomes, the teams can start to work towards. Teams can step up and say, we're going to own this outcome, right? And we know that it's important because it's a leading indicator of the strategic objective. And so the relationship here is between outcomes, outcomes map as leading indicators to impact metrics. and what ends up happening with this exercise in reality is that it ends up becoming sort of a top to bottom customer journey map. You kind of work your way towards the bottom and it basically starts with like, our users do this and then they do this and then they do this and then we make money. And so I think when you get to those first few steps in the customer journey, you've hit the bottom of this particular process and you can still use those outcomes as potential key results but we're still not into 
feature land or outputs at that point. I like that explanation. I love the customer journey thought about it too. Now, this is something I get asked a lot. I'm curious what your take is on it because I find it a little hard to explain. I think it's one thing to actually like write these things out and do it. And then it's another thing to try to explain why it works. But I get asked a lot about platform initiatives. And what about, you know, let's say we've been a giant monolith. And one of our our strategies and our OKRs is to move our monolith to more of a data-centered approach where we have a nice platform in the back and we can decouple it into our APIs and our applications that sit on top of it, which theoretically should make it faster for us to develop and get things out to customers and make it easier for us to scale. How do you look at those types of initiatives when it comes to OKR? How do you reconcile pushes like that? Like, where do they fit in when we're thinking about these goals framework? So they work exactly the same. You just have to think of these, the internal teams as your users and your customers. And again, it's coming back to the goal, the objective. Why are we doing this in the first place? We'd like to become a significantly more agile organization by the end of the year, right? I'm trying to come up with a a good objective or something like that. Or we'd like to become, you know, far more responsive to market conditions because we're bad at it right now. Something along those lines. Well, great. If we're more responsive or if we're more agile about it, how will we know? What will people be doing differently? That's always the key question, right? What will people be doing differently? And in this case, people are internal development teams, for example, right? So we could say that our average cycle time from idea to production is reduced by 50%. Our mean time to recovery, right, is reduced by 90%. We're able to deploy, right, 100% faster than we can deploy today. Something along those lines, are you're looking for those kinds of internal metrics that indicate that the work that you're doing is actually making the organization more agile, more responsive, more able to react to changing market conditions. Your barometer for whether or not the work that you've chosen to do, this replatforming, this refactoring of the code base, whatever it is, your barometer is not, did we deploy the new platform or did we refactor the code? It's, are people more productive? Are they more responsive? Can they react more efficiently to what's happening in the marketplace? And we know that they are or they aren't based on these behaviors. That's the the fundamental difference here is the measure of success becomes the behavior change in people, externally facing or internally facing. I'll tell you a story. It's, it's related to this question, and it's from a mutual client that you and I shared a long time ago. We'll call them Big American Bank, right? Big American Bank had a very enlightened executive who used to work there. And this platform team came to this enlightened executive at Big American Bank, and they said, look, platform that this team was in charge of rehabilitated defaulted credit card users. So if you defaulted on your credit card, this was the system that sort of rehabbed you and got you back into the system. So this was an important system, but it was old and it was clunky. And so the team that was in charge of this came to the enlightened executive and they said to her, we need to replatform this, do a basically a lift and shift. We're going to pick this up off this platform put all these features down on a new platform. And it's going to take two years and cost $20 million. And the enlightened executive looked at the team and they said, and she said to them, she said, that's great. I'm going to give you six months and $5 million. Show me value, right? Show me value after 5 million in six months and I'll give you another 5 million. 
and another six months. The fundamental difference here is that they came at this with like, here's all the work we need to do. We've estimated it out, right? It's going to be spot on, I'm sure, their assessment. And we've estimated this time frame, which will be spot on as well. And it's going to take two years and 20 million. And she said, look, that's fine. I believe you, right? I want to see value sooner than that. So, and it blew their mind because it, it got them thinking completely differently about the work that they were about to do, right? They had to go and do discovery work to figure out, do we actually need 100% of the features from the old system? Which of those features do we actually not need at all? Which ones do we need to port over first to start showing value? And these are the kinds of conversations that when you work in a waterfall prescriptive sort of go build me these things by Thursday and make them blue approach to product development, you don't ask these questions. And so whether it's external users or internal users, you've got to start asking those types of questions first. Yeah, I think that's so important. I love the, the time to value conversation that they're having there. It makes you really think. And I feel like sometimes people just don't think about what value you get from a user perspective too when you do some technical initiatives. Like it helps internally, like you were talking about, but if you can release things faster, get things out the door faster, this time to value, time to revenue for the company that also comes from that as well. So I love that exercise that she was thinking through. But also it's making me think too, what you're talking about, it's really sets you up nicely for a lot of the stuff that you teach in Lean UX, which is start from the goal and then work yourself backwards into figuring out what customers want. So how does this whole process fit in with those types of principles? Here's the, well, the self-serving part of OKRs for me. So let's say a team gets really good, a company gets really good at writing well-written, strategically meaningful, impactful, objective, and key results statements, right? They've done a great job. They really picked the right metrics. This is going to make all the difference. What we've removed from that conversation is features. Typically, teams get told what to build, or they make a roadmap and say, here's what we're going to build, and they get that approved. In the OKR conversation, that part doesn't exist because we leave output completely out of it. And so a lot of teams are like, okay, great. I got OKRs. Now what? what? What do you want me to build? And the answer is you have to go discover what to build. You have to practice lean UX. You have to practice product discovery. You have to practice design thinking. You've got to go out there and declare your assumptions and write your hypotheses and design experiments to figure out the best combination of code, copy, design, value proposition, pricing model, business model, whatever it is, that's going to achieve the behavior change that you're looking for. Now, the sad fact is that a lot of organizations don't know how to do that. And so this is a real opportunity to help teach them Lean UX product discovery. Or the even sadder fact is that some organizations do know how to do that, and they make it difficult or impossible for that work to actually take place. And so that's the next difficult part of the conversation in OKRs is, okay, we did a great job writing them, but now we actually have to go do work differently. Because like I said at the beginning of this conversation, if we just swapped out the goal setting framework and then we just dictated a bunch of features, what's the point? We're wasting time. Just, just stick with the old stuff and keep going. Right? So this forces a conversation around discovery, research, lean UX, that most organizations haven't had yet. 
Yeah. One of the things that always gets me too, when we talk about like strategy deployment, especially the OKR framework is people walk into this with this notion that, oh, we're just going to get in a room in November and just everybody's going to write their OKRs for the next year, right? Instead of like, no, when we talk about deployment, literally you have to deploy it (laughs) in order to create it, right? It's not OKR writing, it's OKR start from the top, go out, do the research to figure out the next level, go out, do the research to figure out the next level. And there's so much experimentation and research and data gathering that happens at each point of when you have to set an OKR that cascades all the way down to the teams and then comes back and refines it all the way back up the organization to make sure it's all aligned across the board. And that, it's like a consistent process. It's not a thing that we do in November. To me, like one of the biggest misconceptions about OKRs is it's not just like a way that we measure success, but it's a way that we should work, right? We should be constantly reevaluating where are we in relation to our OKRs, doing the work to get there, and then saying, hey, did we reach it? If so, what's the next one we're going to set? Instead of waiting for this one weird point of time that happens to be November, usually, and saying, hey, let's do it again. Like, let's just write those things once a year. So what types of like cadences do you work with with teams? How do you kind of get them into the mentality of this is a continuous thing? This is not just, ta-da, like we've got our things for 2022, let's go. Spot on, right? So OKRs, as much as they're a gateway drug to lean UX, they're a great gateway drug to organizational agility as well. Because to your point, right, we set a goal and that goal is behavior change. And we say, okay, great. So our goal for the next quarter is to increase average order value for our high value customers by 20%. Okay, great. And we work on it for 12 weeks for a quarter and we did it. Cool. What do you want to do next? Right? I got three more quarters this year, right? Or maybe the team comes back and says, look, we are pounding our heads against the wall here. I think we can squeeze 8%, maybe 9% average order value increase, but realistically, we're maxing out these folks, right? We're never going to hit 20%. Cool. You've got evidence to prove that. What do you want to do for the next three quarters? That type of thing. And so it really provides an evidence-based objective conversation about how to focus and prioritize the team's work. Now, what cadence? To me, start quarterly. And why quarterly? Simply because it's less than a year. Like you said, we've got this season in November, typically, where everybody sets everything up, they hang around for a year, and then we come back and visit it, revisit it in a year. But maybe we, we hit the goals already ahead of the year. Maybe we'll never hit the goals. And so quarterly check-ins allow us to reflect on whether or not it still makes sense to to go towards these goals that we've set for ourselves. If it does, terrific. But if it doesn't, well, then let's decide where to change and how to change. And to be super clear about this, this conversation, this quarterly conversation, should not be a surprise. Everybody coming to that quarterly OKR check-in should be fully aware of what's happened along the way. So there's a responsibility here on the team to communicate proactively and transparently both up and out so that when we all show up with a quarterly check-in, it's not like, oh my God, you only hit 8%. I thought you were going to hit 20. Everybody should be fully aware about why we're only hitting 8%, what we've tried, and the conversation should be forward-looking, not backwards-looking in those quarterly check-ins. Now look, quarterly is just, it's just a number, a cadence that works for a lot of organizations. But there are people who work in a field or an industry where they can't get data fast enough in a quarter, right? Or they're 
production cycle times are, are much longer. That's fine. Just do it sooner than you normally do, right? Cut your current process in half, cut it into quarters. Like if it's a two-year cycle that you, like a product development cycle that you work on right now, check in every six months. Anything that's sooner gives you a greater opportunity for course correction based on evidence, and it makes it infinitely easier to make that course correction because you've invested less in your current thinking. If you spend a year on something, you're going to hate having to change course. You're not going to change course. No one's going to change course. Everyone's just going to die on that hill because we burned a year's worth of budget on it. But if you spent three months on it and you find out that it's the bad idea, it's just not going to work. Cool. We got nine more months. So there's a phenomenal benefit here to shorter, shorter cycles, not just in your product development, obviously, but in your, in your OKR cycle as well. Yeah. I find like so many people look at what we talk about with lean UX and experimentation. They're like, well, I work for like this giant aerospace company. I can't possibly experiment in a month. And it's like, you don't have to. If it took you five years to do something before, maybe get some information in one year instead, right? Like that's still better than five years. That's five times faster. And then you can actually do something with that. I just think that mentality is like so important to understand. It's not about doing something in a week. It's about doing things in less time, like you were talking about, than what it normally takes. But you also just mentioned something about communication too and like going into this meeting. This is where I get a lot of questions about how do you communicate your OKRs and your strategy? So I've seen like a lot of people throw them on a dashboard and I think that's great, but I don't think that really communicates the intent between behind the entire OKR, right? For a lot of situations. So I make people write memos. I have them write like two, three page memos on what's our strategy and why did we pick these OKRs and where were we coming from and what's the vision and what are we doing versus what, what we're not doing. Sometimes it's the only time executives have actually sat down and wrote out exactly what they want to do for the next year or so. But I feel like that communication piece is so important. What have you done that works with your teams and your executives and your product managers at every level to help them really explain these things so that when you do walk into the quarterly meeting, people understand what you're talking about? Yeah. So I take a slightly more generic rather than tactical approach, but I might steal your approach because I really like it. It's a tactical version. But generally speaking, look, I talk to product managers explicitly about storytelling and being a good storyteller as a key component of being a good product manager. The overwhelming majority of product managers lead without authority, have to bring people along with them on a vision that either they've come up with or that they've built together with a team. And why should I go with you? Why should I believe in these goals? Why did you choose these these behaviors as the ones that we focus on? If you can tell a concise and compelling story that ties in the strategy, user data, the reason why you chose these, and the benefits that you think we'll achieve if we hit these goals, to me, that can become an extremely compelling part of the conversation. And, And it takes practice, and it takes discipline, and it takes work, frankly. Like, you have to go do the research, right? You can't just say, oh, these three look good, and let's just do these KRs, right? You've really got to make a compelling case for we're, the problem that we're seeing. So in Lean UX, we always start with the problem statement, right? What's the problem statement that we're trying to solve? That's a great way to start the conversation. What we've observed over the last six months is that people sign up for the service, they place one order for grocery deliveries, and then we never see them again. That's a problem for us because our cost per acquisition 
is $15 per user, right? And if they don't buy at least $15 worth of stuff on their first order, we're losing money on every one of these folks. And this is 75% of our user base. In other words, like this is becoming a good story, right? You're coming along. You're like, okay, this, this is worth solving, right? This is fundamental to the business. And so if you can tell a compelling story, you can sell the OKRs to your team, your executives, your stakeholders, whoever's paying attention to it in a way that motivates them to help you achieve them. So storytelling, absolutely the key to all of this. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important tools for a product manager and using the data to make it colorful and to really bring it to life, absolutely key for explaining your strategy and what you should be doing as a product manager and why you should be doing it. And we always love to talk about like, bringing developers on the journey and, you know, making your team psyched about it. A lot of product managers out, out there asking about like, how do I get my developers on board with this? How do I get my stakeholders on board with it? And I think your advice is absolutely key for hitting on that, for really making sure that people come along with you on that journey. So this has been fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing all of your OKR advice with us. If people want to learn more about OKRs and your work and Lean UX and everything, where can they go to read more about it? So the best place you can go is jeffgodhealth.com, your source for all things Jeff Godhealth. I write a blog there. I write a weekly blog. The overwhelming majority of the topics in the last couple of years have been OKRs. And, uh, and you can always please connect with me on LinkedIn, very active on there as well. And, and you'll find links to, to blog posts and my OKR course and, and everything else on there. So just go to my website. I'd love to see you there. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. And thank you all for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Product Thinking Podcast so you get a new one in your inbox every Wednesday. We'll have some more great guests and we will see you next Wednesday.